0: Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends, how you doing? My name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here. Greetings on this wonderful Daylight Savings Day, a day that means nothing to you if you have small children, as I do. It's, uh, it's just this blip, I, I, it's not that I'm mad at you guys, I, I just resent you all, to be honest. I, uh, my kids got up at uh, five because they thought it was six and their life continued uh, as it had the days before that. So anyway, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just complaining. Uh, so. We're going to jump into our series on Acts. We're in chapter 16. We're going to start here. I'm going to to start by telling you a story, and I'm just going to trust you just to hold on to this story for a while, and we'll we'll kind of come back to it after a bit. A man is traveling for work. He's in an airport. He's flying from Seattle to Houston, and while he's sitting at the bar waiting for his flight to board, a beautiful woman comes over to him and says, "Would you like to have a drink with me?" And he's like. I absolutely would. This is something I've been hoping would happen the whole of my life, and it never has until this day. I would love to have a drink with you. And so she goes off, and she comes back from the bar with a couple of bottles of beer. And that's the last thing he remembers before waking up in a bathtub of water and ice. He begins to panic, and he looks at the wall in front of him, and there's a sign that says, don't move, call 911 looks to his right, and there's a phone sat by the, the, the bathtub, and he picks up the phone, calls 911, and says, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I, I just woke up in a bathtub full of water and ice, and the sign says, call 911. And the, the person on the end of the line says, don't panic. And he says, that's easy for you to say. I mean, this is a panicky situation. No, he says, okay, what, what should I do? And the lady says, well, I want you to reach behind your back, and can you find a tube? in your lower back? And he said, yes, I can. There's a tube coming out of of my back. And she said, okay, what's happened is this. There's a gang of criminals that have been harvesting people's organs. You've fallen victim to one of their schemes. We're going to send someone to be with you straight away. Now, for a while, this story uh, was so common that everybody of a certain age, in a certain period, had a friend of a friend that this had happened to. And yet, there's not one single statistical case of this ever happening anywhere in the United States. It's just never, ever taken place. And yet the story is so sticky that I'm going to ask you in about 20 minutes what you remember about the story. I'm not going to ask, actually ask you to answer, but I'm just going to ask you to recollect the story. And I would predict you can remember 95% of the details. There's something about story that engages our minds and connects with our hearts that, that ultimately is transformative in a way that just information never is. So that being said, we'll come back to it, but for now, let's read a story. We're going to read Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16. If you have a text, we'll go through it verse by verse together, but for now, I'm just going to read down to verse 31. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, "'These men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved.' She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, "'In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her.'" At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making any money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them from before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, they are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs and law for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his house were baptized. Let's pray. God, as we look at this text, would you speak to us? Uh, would you give us wisdom? Wherever we are in our journey, would you nudge us a little bit further on that journey? Thank you that you're present here with us. Amen. So, as I said, in this series on the book of Acts, coming swiftly towards a conclusion as we get to that time of year where we move into Advent and we move uh, into this Christmas-type season. What we said back way at the beginning when we spent some time looking at Luke, this biography of Jesus' life before we looked at Acts, was really these could be two parts of the same series, of the same book. There's Luke part one and Luke part two and and Luke is really what Jesus did and and Acts. The second book is, is what his followers did. And in amongst these books, there are these two big surprises. The one surprise is that Jesus died Nobody really expected that. All of the, the sort of the history, all of the Jewish promises, prophets had said, "No, no, Jesus is going to come, and or Messiah is going to come, and he's going to do something to rescue Israel." As we move into this season called Advent, we'll get to go back and look at what some of those prophets said and what they had promised. This season, where we build up to Christmas, which for some of you means switching from this obnoxiously quickly to this, um, there are some of you that are breaking all sorts of social conventions with your Christmas. Decoration. December first people uh, is the time that 's allowed. My kids are trying to watch christmas movies already i 'm like, nope you, you can 't dilute Christmas. You have to keep it in december that 's how it works. But this season is not just about this facade, not just about the lightings. This advent season is this, this process of actually preparing ourselves, realizing that this whole Jewish nation waited for years for a Messiah figure to turn up, just as those of us that would call ourselves followers of Jesus today wait for his return and yet for them it didn't look as they expected it to look. The fact that Jesus died was a huge surprise to this early community of his followers. The second big surprise was this, people like you and I were included. Now if you're Jewish you're probably in the minority here, generally Gentiles were not expected to be included in this story. And suddenly there's these moments where they are now included. And Paul, that we looked at last week, we looked at his conversion, this moment where he joins this Jesus story, we're told that Paul will be this person that will begin to pull Gentiles in to this big story. The idea is that God is interested in the whole world, not just one small section of it. And while it would be great to track all of Paul's journeys in a couple of weeks, We don't have time. Uh, So we're just going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at his visit to two particular towns or cities. We're going to look today at his visit to a town called Philippi, next week to his visit to a city called Athens. And so let's go back to the start and track with what's happening here with Paul And the rest of his guys, Acts chapter 16, verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer. So notice the we. This is the first time or one of the first times Luke is now actually involved in the story. This author who's heard sort of what's going on. He's written down, recorded details. Luke is now part of what Paul is doing. And Luke, Silas, Paul, a couple of others have been traveling from place to place. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, to start with, who sees a problem with this story particularly? Is there a problem with it? I mean, on the surface, if you're starting or, or propagating or spreading a new religion and you walk into a town where there is already a great deal of religious activity and one of the major proponents of that religion starts following you around saying, these guys are right, these, you should listen to them. On the surface, is there anything wrong with that? When you read it on the surface, this seems like a huge advantage. Paul has walked into this town, started sharing his message and someone who's known to predict the future has said, listen to this man, he's wise, he has the truth on the surface we would say if we were going about starting a new faith or sharing a new faith people buying in that seems like a good thing and yet that isn't how this story works so she kept this up for many days finally paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit in the name of jesus christ i command you to come out of her at the moment the spirit Lefter, this passage has a ton of, I'm sick of you kids, go to your room energy. You know how like when when you are parenting, finally you get to that point, I I just need to be where you aren't and I need you to be where I'm not as well. So just go to your room and stay there till I tell you. This is the sort of language that we're we're sort of tapping into here. This idea of being annoyed, grieved, like a depleting grief at the end of your energy. Finally, pause, like, I'm sick of this. Like just, the implication is he could have done it days ago, but he just he hadn't been pushed far enough. And finally he gets to this point of saying, J- just, just get out of it. Now, the story is important for a couple of reasons. Luke, this author, has been really keen to show us the things that Jesus did, his followers are now doing. The things that happened to Jesus are now happening to his followers. So in chapter three, we saw this moment where Peter is used by God to heal someone. Well, Jesus healed many people. There's this moment where some of them are arrested and questioned, and Jesus was arrested and questioned. There's chapter seven where Stephen is killed for his faith, and Jesus was killed. And in this incredible moment, just like Jesus forgave his enemies in this moment of death, Stephen will do the same thing. There's multiple ways that we see that reflected, and, and this is another example of that. Jesus had moments like this where he would say to a spirit, Just be quiet, just I'm done. This, this same energy was present there. On the surface, there's no obvious answer particularly as to why Paul chooses to not take advantage of this person who's basically saying, listen to this guy. But what I would suggest is maybe at the heart of this is this. For Paul, there can be no association between this new way, this Jesus way, and the old ways. If she walks around saying, no, listen to this guy, and people do, then by association there's some connection between the two. And what Paul is very clear about is this Jesus story connects back to the old Jewish story, but it has no connection to any of these other stories. This is a new thing that is taking place. God is doing something new and he's doing it for all of humanity. And so we see when our owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, this excuse that they give, is this really what's bothering them? Absolutely not. Just like we saw with the Jewish leaders in chapters three, chapters four, chapters five. This passage again is primarily centered around power and how you can stay in power, wealth and how you can keep hold of wealth. We see what happens when established power is challenged by an alternative power. And this narrative is there over and over again in Acts. The Jewish leaders knew that a miracle had taken place in chapter three and yet had to reject it because well, what will happen if the people hear about this? They chose to hide it simply out of ignorance. Same thing with these guys. In Philippi, it's no different because we're now in the Greek speaking world. They know something significant is happening and yet just to keep hold of power, same narrative. What happens when power is challenged by an alternative power? And that will happen throughout this Jesus movement. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with ruts. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this is the entrance of this character that we'll spend a little bit of time wrestling with. He is told, keep them secure. So what does that mean for him? He takes them to the prison, to the room with no windows. He locks them in stocks as well to make sure there is absolutely no possibility of them escaping. This is all about creating certainty that nothing can happen to continue the story. The story has to end here. And yet, of course, because it's it's God's story, it doesn't end there. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. This is part of maybe a narrative tradition across all of Christianity over the world in nations where people are persecuted. Incredibly, one of the wonderful aspects of Christianity is in the midst of persecution, only tolerate abuse, but to rejoice In the midst of it, the story is so real that in the midst of the worst, they are able to sing. And Paul and Silas model that for us delightfully. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, such a violent earthquake, that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. If you are Paul and Silas at this moment, what is your response Is your response, hey, God provides, it's time to leave. Let's exit, everybody. If you are Paul and Silas at this moment, what is your response? Is your response, hey, God provides, it's time to leave. Let's exit, everybody. We're all off together. Notice it's not just Paul and Silas that are included in this. All the prison doors flew open. Everybody's chains came loose. Suddenly there's this possibility of mass exodus. Everybody just leaves the guilty and the non-guilty alike. And yet again, the story takes this slightly surprising twist because they don't leave for whatever reason the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. He would be responsible for them. He was supposed to keep them secure. This is his job. They've been given to him, to God, and there's this moment where he thinks they've gone and now had escaped. He would be responsible for them. He was supposed to keep them secure. This is his job. They've been given to him, to God, and there's this moment where he thinks they've gone and now this is a problem. He's going to take the ultimate step of killing himself. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The story, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is really vague. Did they not escape because they didn't have time? Was it just really that sort of staccato? There's this moment of earthquake. There's this moment where the jailer runs in and they're so close together they didn't have time? Or did he intentionally wait for the jailer? We just don't know. But Either way, Paul is super concerned that this guy not take a step of harming himself. Don't harm yourself, we are all here. And then the jailer rushes to them and asks this immortal perhaps question, a question that has been reiterated in sermons all over the place. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Which is an unusual question, right? I mean, for him to ask, We may think of it as normal if we grew up in church, we may have used that language a lot, but what does he mean by that in this moment? What does this Greek man who has simply encountered this new, what does he think he needs? What's his felt need? It's it's just left on the surface with no particular answer. He has seen something in this narrative that tells him he has some need deep in his life. Now, now, we would say, those of us that have been in this church thing for a while, well, he realized his need for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, and, and I could say, maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he will eventually. Later, we'll see, we're told, Paul will unpack this Jesus story for him, but in this moment, I actually think all we can say is that this, maybe he will eventually. Later, we'll see, we're told, Paul will unpack this Jesus story for him, but in this psalm, felt need in him that says, this story I am living by right now for a different story. He doesn't know what it is. He, He doesn't know at this point anything that Jesus ever taught. He has no real information that we would call concrete about who Jesus is, and yet he has seen enough in this small story to say, there's something here. I want in on this story. Friends, all over the world, there are people that are living stories that have just been given to them at birth, perhaps, or they've adopted later that are saying, I need a better story to live by. I need something else. This story, it's just not working. In this moment, this jailer, whatever else he comes to know, sees this moment where he sees another story on display. And his question is simply phrased, what must I do to be saved? But not in a Jewish, not in a Christian way, just in a very earthly Greek way. I need something from you, Paul and Silas. What is it that you have that I don't have? Wherever his story goes, whatever he comes to understand later, right now, we can't say that he understands much more than this, and Paul's answer is is delightful. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And again, the question would be like, what does that help him with? Again, very vague on what he even knows about Jesus at this point, and yet Paul's answer is simply, believe in Jesus. I would suggest as a big, broad term, what Paul is basically saying is, is something like this, enter into this new story. Now I know for some of you, and I'm just gonna point this out right now, there'll be a definite, wait, hold on a second, but we have to talk about death, crucifixion, the payment of sins, resurrect's new story. Now I know for some of you, and I'm just gonna point this out right now, there'll be a definite wait, sins, resurrection. Absolutely we do, that is 100% part of the story. And there's loads for you to learn You need this story, though. Come and get involved in this story. Steps into, to start with. I wonder whether Paul, when he thinks back to stories like this, I wonder, Colossi, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Think through the the narrative that Paul has walked through. I'm in jail. Suddenly there's an earthquake. I have a chance to escape. A jailer's about to kill himself. And to Paul, that's an opportunity to bring someone into this Jesus story. For you and I, it's a jumbled series of events. For you and I, it's a moment of escape. A jailer's about to kill himself. And to Paul that's an opportunity to bring someone into this Jesus story. For you and I, it's a jumbled series of events. For you and I, it's a moment of irritation, of, of panic. All these. You and I, it's a moment of irritation, of, of panic, all these potential different things. To Paul, so focused is he, so committed to this story is he that what he sees in this moment is a man who needs this Jesus story, and in this moment, he takes advantage of it to pull him in. He sees a man on the brink of of ending it all, a man on the brink of disaster, a man who is broken, and he, in this moment, sees this simply as an opportunity to bring him into the story. Make the most of every opportunity is what he writes to this church in Colossae. And then the next step is that we're told, then immediately he and all his household were baptized. He immediately, immediately he and all his house were baptized, which gives, us an opportunity to, which gives us an opportunity to talk about this thing that has been present throughout Acts, and yet we've seemingly had to just skip over. In chapter two, we read that a whole bunch of people join the church and 3,000 of them are baptised. In chapter four, a whole bunch of people join the church and 5,000 of them are baptised. In chapter eight, a man called Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch that he leads into this relationship with Jesus and he says, there's water, I want to be baptised. All the way through Acts, there's this narrative of baptism. They do the very thing that we'll do next week. We'll take some people and we'll dunk them in water which if you're completely outside of the church movement is just as fun and cool as it sounds in a religious ceremony we actually get to take people and dunk them into water this is this ritual this thing that churches have done for thousands of years but the question is and it's not really unpacked here at all or in any passage which is why we get to unpack it together across the whole of acts is why does baptism matter When the man has asked this question, when he said, what do I need to do to be saved? The answer wasn't baptism. The answer was believe in Jesus and and, and you'll be saved. But then there's this apparently automatic next step of baptism. Baptism doesn't seem to do the thing itself. And yet everybody in Acts who jumps into this Jesus story follows it through with this process of choosing to get baptized. So a couple of passages, couple of places that writers in the Bible unpack baptism a little bit. And then I'm going to sort of maybe point out a couple of things that I think you will know if you've been around church for a while, and maybe ask a question that, that is maybe a little new. This is Paul writing to a church in Rome. Oh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too, may have new life. This picture of baptism is this picture of, it represents the death and new life that you and I experience if we choose this Jesus story. It represents the death and life experience that, that this man, this Philippian jailer, will experience in this moment that he chooses this Jesus story. Incredibly, it means this, that baptism means death before it means life. That there is this distinctness to the story that represents all that Jesus has done. This is Peter writing to a a church that he has planted in 1 Peter chapter 3. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. So he makes this reference to this older story that we won't get into. This water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For both of these writers, for Paul and for Peter, there is this connection to, to this story of baptism. Something that you are doing here represents your entrance into this new and different story. It isn't the thing itself, and yet it's important as a representation of the story. You might say that for a lot of people, baptism is first a cleansing of an old story. Baptism wasn't new to Christians, so lots of people were baptizing at the time. John the Baptist, of course, was doing a baptism very similar to this, and as John unpacks it for the people that are joining his baptism, he says, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his place of baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit then, in keeping with repentance. Baptism somewhere is this recognition that you've turned and made a change, something old is being left behind, something new is being entered into. But it's also not a cleansing just of an old story, it's also maybe an initiation into a new story. It's this moment where these followers of Jesus said publicly, I am entering into this new story. I am making this declaration. A private, personal, internal decision suddenly becomes this thing you are announcing to everyone. And and let me say this, you can make a decision, I can make a decision. We can be baptised into this Jesus thing or something else. But you are definitely baptised into something, whether you know it or not. It might just be that you're simply baptised into this world system of consuming and producing. We we live in this world and in this age where really we're told our value is based on how much we can produce and how much we can consume. And what we're told over and over again, whether we know it or not, is you never get enough and you never consume enough. There's always more to get and always more to consume. And that's why you have the dream car that you always wanted. And then you get that car and then another car is released or an upgrade happens or something new is available to you. You get the house that you thought your family would always be happy and everything would be great and then after a while there's a better house or a bigger house or another location. There's always something else to attain to. And that's sort of the world's thing that we could be baptised into. And sometimes we hear this narrative maybe that, well, that's all just capitalism. But eh, people have been sitting in towers counting coins for a lot longer than capitalism has existed. We as humans for a long time have gathered more and more stuff and said that's the value of life. Somewhere baptism as an initiation into this new story is a, is a declaration I'm not for the world's thing. I'm decidedly in favor of this thing. So you might say that somewhere cleansing and initiation is what baptism is. It's death and it's resurrection. It's tomb and it's also womb. It is something that represents this moment of new birth. But what I would say for those of us that have been doing this church thing for a while, that's all in the past, right? I mean, for most of us, Many of you chose to be baptized, maybe as a kid. Maybe you didn't choose it. Maybe you walked through that journey because your parents put you through it. Maybe you did it as an adult. But many of us would have taken that journey. And if you haven't, the invitation for you is the same as for the Philippian jailer. Enter into this new story, a death and resurrection and new life and all that Jesus did. Enter into that story and then be baptized. But what about for those of us that would say, well, we did that thing. Is, it, is all it is just a past Thing that we a hoop that we jump through. I spent a couple of years on a PhD program, and I had this incredible Austrian supervisor who, after a while, when I was about to have our, we were about to have our first child, looked at me and he said, "Alex, I don't question whether you have the uh, intelligence to do a PhD. I question if you have the arrogance." I was like. What do you mean, arrogance? And he said, Well, all of us academics at heart were arrogant. Everyone has to suffer so we can jump through this hoop that enables us to do what we want to do. But all it is is a hoop. It just gives us access to teach. And, and we write this one paper, and then they tell us now we can teach on any subject related to it without any particular qualification to do it. But he said, It's really just a hoop, just a hoop for, for you with your story of I entered into this Jesus story, I was baptized. Is it simply, it was a thing I did because I was supposed to do, and it's in the past? Is that all baptism is? Cleansing from an old story is great. Initiation into a new story is great. But does it mean something today? Does it have any practical sort of meeting of a felt need? And to tap into that felt need, what I'd like us to do is read another story together. This story to me is tap into that felt need What I'd like us to do is read another story together. This story to me is, when I think about pathos, when I think about heartbreak in the Bible, this is one of those stories that I go to. I'm gonna read most of it out loud and I'm just gonna throw the last few verses up on the screen. This is Lamentations chapter five, which I'm sure many of you have read recently for your daily devotional readings. Chapter five, verse one, devotional readings. Chapter five, verse one, remember our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our word can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned and are no more. We bear Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the town of Judah their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstone, stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our, da- our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Zion which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it, you Lord, you Lord reign forever, your throne endures from generation to generation, why do you forsake us so long, restore us to yourself Lord that we may return really rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure, throne endures from generation to generation, why do you always forget us? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. The last words of this writer of this book, Lamentations, it's the lament, the poem of a city that is in, the city that has no hope of a preferred future. And yet it articulates what I would suggest up there. Why do you forget us? Why do you always have moments of saying, I feel forgotten. I feel forgotten. The universe could pay attention and doesn't. When I was six or seven years old, I was left in the parking. Look, the five minutes that became 10 minutes. I'm talking past the time where you're like, this is just normal to the point about your safety. And I remember thinking, why isn't she here? And if she isn't here, is she thinking? So like I should be there, and for some reason, I'm not there right now. Now, now I have kids of my own, and I forget them regularly. It's not uncommon, right? I'm just like, you know, get over it. you sat in a parking lot. It's fine. But at the sense of, of neglect and the sense of being forgotten was so palpable. And, and I would say you always forget us. And yet, we often feel forgotten. Not that forgets. I would suggest that we are the ones that are forget. We often feel forgotten. But while we may feel forgotten, we are the ones who forget just by name open up some cans of worms in amongst relationships by saying has there been an anniversary that was forgotten has the uh, it's just such a great day isn't it and and the other one looks back and says uh-huh it is a great day isn't it forgotten something special happened on um, there is that the way that uh, partner can look at part in forgotten by nature we forget stuff as human beings uh, and to sort of help us understand that i'm going to show you Jaja. Baptism. That's an easy one. Grilla. Pizza. Watermelon. Classic grade school error. Didn't leave myself enough room to finish watermelon. Tea. Let's finish with something very English. Is there anyone who feels every single one of these words from memory? I mean, I just gave you eight words. You can come and say, oh, I can remember all of those words. And yet, It's more difficult than we would think. A human being can memorize nine digits, and that's it. Now, now there are some freaks of, uh, of, uh, of nature in terms of their ability to recollect stuff. This man recited pi to 80 that are able to remember incredible bits of information. But interestingly, when they do these memory things in competitions, in competition, almost every single one of them, when asked to memorize words, they take those words and what they place them into story because as we said at the beginning, story sticks, an infomeric device. So many of you could come up and recite that story from memory, that story about him up to me in the first service and say, I need some closure to that story. What happened to that guy? I'm like, I don't know. He's not real. um, He's now married with three kids and living in, I don't know, Seattle. Um, Writer Joan Didion. And I think that is true. And yet, I also think I could extend it to something else as well. And that moment that we forget our stories, something goes missing in England. At Remembrance Day, we wear these poppies of red and black. And I read this story just yesterday about a a man who was... And he just went very gently over to and said, well, traditionally, we wear it over our hearts. And the red... And as I heard this story, I thought, oh my goodness, soon the people that experience that won't be around to share that. It appears we need stories in order to live. We need stories in order. is They gathered all of the poets and songwriters and storytellers to say that they wanted to meet with them, all of them, because they knew by nature that a nation that has no storytellers has stories in order to live. We tell ourselves stories in order to remember, and your baptism, the thing that's So a story a story that involves this element of water that is so ingrained. You could call Christianity a religion of water. It's in all of our texts. It's in all of our lust for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God. For the, The writing, there is water, water, water. And your story of baptism is this story that you need to remember. Baptismal imagination, this recollection, this recalling, this living back into a baptism moment, a decision you made back there. It's not just a thing that you jumped into and just did because, I mean, if you jumped into this Jesus story, that thing still has power, still has mediation, but it's also a remembering of the story. Remembering that God said, remembering in that moment of your deepest cry and ache of God has forgotten me. No, 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 he did not forget. But God that does remember, that may be delayed, that may wait, cares still knows when we rem- remember our baptism when we remember back does not forget and in that way it's very similar to communion which we will walk through together even the Lord what I also passed unto you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he did you this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and say, no, I, I am involved in this story. This is the story that I choose to live by. In all of my moments, of the God who does not forget, who does remember, Communion, just like just how grounding and necessary it is for us to live. In this Philippian jailer, we see this man, we see this man who is essentially in a point of needing a different story, whatever he means by, what else to live by. And Paul's response is believe in Jesus, enter into his story, being forgotten. We are the ones who forget. God does not forget. In a moment, you can come into this story. This story that in your moments of brokenness, in your moments of I fear, because this God doesn't forget. It's us who forget. Psalm 25 says this, do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. I think it seems like God can forget his sins. The one thing that he is able, Jesus' story is just that good, that that thing that we don't want him to remember, he is able to forget, but, but you are not forgotten. It is us that forget. And so we get to come and participate in sacraments, And whether this week you drink a glass of water, the time you climb in a hot tub or a warm bath, or anything around water, this remembrance and remind've chosen to enter into the story of the God who does not forget, or it's coming to this table and doing to come and to remember him. So I'm going to invite Aaron to come and lead us in a song, and together "Come, Holy Spirit, come. Awaken our senses to throw away our veils so we may encounter your real presence as we come to your table. On the night that he was portrayed, Jesus gathered with his earliest followers and taking bread, be broken for you. In the same way, he gathered the cup, handed it to each As long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. So as long as we... Until he comes... God in this moment of your presence. There are probably some, certainly some in this room who feel forgotten. Our story feels fractured, it feels damaged. Yet you invite us into this new story, a better story to live by. You have not forgotten. The Jesus story is at its essence a story of a God who has not forgotten this world that would ultimately give his own son to make it whole. In our need for wholeness, our need for forgiveness, a deep cry that perhaps resonates with the jailer in Philippi, what must I do to be saved? May we come to this table and find you present. As Aaron leads us in song, feel free to come and grab the elements and take them back to your seats and we'll take them together as we end the service. Come whenever you're ready. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.